In Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 2. And he opened, this is Jesus' mouth, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As you know, this means the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's probably as far as we'll get tonight, and we might not even get to the last one. If you were with us last time when we were together, you remember we looked at what it meant to be the poor in spirit. Everyone's poor in spirit. Everyone is spiritually bankrupt. There's no one righteous, not even one. And blessed are those who realize that apart from God giving them righteousness, they're not righteous. There's no one righteous, no, not one. There's not even anyone that even seeks God. Spiritually, we are poor apart from Christ giving us wonderful, His riches, if you will. But where we left off was that. And now we're going to move into blessed are those, the scripture says, who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, I want to just kind of clarify why this is important. Because when we looked at last time we were together, the importance of realizing your spiritual bankruptcy, if you will. But there's lots of people in the world will tell you, yeah, I'm a sinner. Who cares? You ever heard people say things like, hey, I'm going to go to hell and I'm going to party with all my friends. You see, it's one thing to acknowledge you've broken God's law and that you're spiritually bankrupt. It's another thing to be grieved over it, and not everyone is. When we truly understand our lostness and the depth of our sin, we should grieve. And I'm going to explain this in more detail tonight, but not only before salvation, but also afterwards. And we're going to go deep tonight as we look at these Beatitudes, if you will, in the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that this teaching wasn't just for those who needed to understand their condition in order to enter the kingdom by faith. These teachings of Jesus are deeper than that, and they're actually for kingdom people and how we're to be living in such a way that he produces his righteousness through us even after we're saved. So when he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, it'll be good for you to realize that apart from him, you can do nothing. Not only do you need to understand that in order to be saved, it'll be valuable for you to live with that understanding on a daily basis. Do you understand what I'm saying? Apart from him, I'm still poor in spirit. Any riches I have in spirit, any righteousness I have is from Jesus, even on a daily basis. Blessed are those who mourn, who grieve over their sin, because hopefully that'll drive them to turn to Jesus if they haven't been saved. But for those of us who are saved, well, we need to understand our lostness as well. Actually, let me change the phrase. We need to understand the seriousness of sin, even after we're saved. So that's what we're going to look at closely. Just real quickly, I think you understand this, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Go to Acts chapter 2. Peter has been preaching here at Pentecost, and at the end of his sermon, he says this. He said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, this is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Don't miss this. Peter's preaching. He's been preaching this long sermon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He hadn't sat home that night working on his message. He didn't know he was going to be preaching the next day. The Holy Spirit took over, and he preached. And as he did, the people were cut to their heart, and their response was, well, not only are we sinners, we're in trouble. What must we do? Now, I'm going to chase a rabbit real quick. I've taught you over the years, don't chase rabbits when, you, when you're preaching or teaching unless you can catch it and it tastes good. This is one you can catch and it does taste good. Notice how the preacher didn't try to get them to respond. The preacher just preached. And the Holy Spirit was the one that brought them to repentance. We've been taught over the years to draw the net. Have you ever heard that term? As you share the gospel, you got to draw the net. In other words, as we share the gospel with you, you might not have ever heard about God, but we've been taught to take a tract and start, Susan, you know, on page one, and would you like to know about, and would you like to pray this prayer right now? And we feel it's our job to try to push someone over the edge. we got to close the deal, make the sale. And if you look at the scriptures, that's the Holy Spirit's work. And our churches today are full of rocky soil conversions that sprung up, but they weren't real salvations because you know what? There is no root in that, real, that prayer. They might have prayed a prayer. They might even have been baptized. But you know, when trouble comes, you're going to find out they really never had their faith in Jesus. They had their faith in an idea about Jesus, and he wasn't who they thought he was, and they left. Oh, our churches are full of thorny soil conversions as well, where we get someone to pray the prayer, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke them. Folks, let me just tell you, as you look at the scriptures in Acts chapter 8, you have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And what happens? The Ethiopian eunuch was the one who initiated the conversation. What, you know, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? The jailer comes and says, brothers, what must I do to be saved? Folks, let me just tell you, when someone is truly understanding their lostness and then they grieve and they mourn over it, it's the Holy Spirit that does that work in their heart. You don't have to help him. He's pretty powerful. He doesn't need you or me. But too many of us have been taught to measure results. Hey, I shared the gospel with my neighbor. Did they pray the prayer? What's wrong with just being happy that I shared the gospel with my neighbor? It's the Lord who does his work. Jesus actually talked with Nicodemus, and he just planted the seed, watered it, left it. It took its root when the Holy Spirit had done its work when it was time. You don't see the preacher saying, would you like to do that right now? That's the Holy Spirit's work. And if someone really understands their lostness, really understands it, and the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes to the fact that they are destined for hell and they're not going to party with their friends, their natural reaction is to mourn and to grieve over the fact, I'm a sinner. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, you don't have to turn there. Remember, Jesus is teaching in Peter's boat. And he says to him afterwards, hey, why don't we throw out the nets and make a catch and... Peter says, look, we fished all night, Lord, but we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll humor you. And then what happens is they pull in so many fish. What was Peter's reaction? He fell on his knees and said, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, look at verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What was Isaiah's reaction when he saw the holiness of God? Now you say, was he a believer or unbeliever? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I want you to hear me. When you really understand the holiness of God, you're going to need to understand that in order to mourn over your sin, in order to be saved. But I want you to hear me. It has been lost in the church, an understanding of the fact that God still hates sin, even though you've been forgiven of it. You want proof? Go with me to James chapter 4. I'm going to put it to you this way, and I'm going to show you from Scripture. True kingdom people are never comfortable with their sin. I'm going to say that to you again. True kingdom people are never comfortable with their sin. There's a problem in the church today that I feel like God wants me to deal with in this section, and I hope you hear it not coming from Jim Johnson, but from the Lord. I spent some time tonight praying beforehand that I would not do anything in my flesh by trying to accomplish anything, by trying to make anybody feel guilty or trying to manipulate or trying to persuade anyone. I don't want you convinced because Jim had a really good argument. But I believe the Holy Spirit wants to talk to his bride tonight. In James chapter 4, listen to verses 1 through 10. By the way, is James writing to believers or unbelievers? Believers. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you, uh, you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you, don't, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Obviously talking to Christians. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and what? Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He's writing to the church and he's saying, you guys are all at war with each other and you're fighting with each other for jockeying for position. And you're okay with it. I was at a church one time. I'm not going to tell you the name of the church, but it was in Live Oak, Florida. And they were having business meeting in the midst of the revival that I was preaching there that week. And. I'm not going to get into the details of what was going on, but there was enough bickering and stuff going on back and forth in that meeting that I couldn't take it anymore. And I stood up and I said, I know I'm not a member of this church. And so according to Robert's rules of orders, I'm not legally allowed to speak. But you've asked me to come and give you some spiritual wisdom this week and guidance. And let me just tell you, this is embarrassing what's going on here. And I had a man come up to me afterwards and he said, that's just how we do things here. Folks, I, I believe in the people I'm speaking to here for the most part, and maybe those of you that are listening online, you do understand in order to be saved, you can't just acknowledge you're a sinner. You need to be grieved over that fact. But I want you to hear me tonight. True kingdom people continue to grieve when they sin. I don't know about you, but I still sin. 
Even though I've been forgiven of all my sin, I still sin. But I don't like it. I'm not okay with it. And hopefully you never are. Hopefully when you're sinned, you're grieved. The Bible actually says the Holy Spirit's grieved. The Holy Spirit's grieved. If the Holy Spirit's grieved, why shouldn't you be grieved when you sin? But there's a lot of stuff that's going on in our churches today that we say is okay. We just, we just put lipstick on the pig. Go with me to Galatians chapter 5. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 19. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 says this. It says, now the works or the evidence of the flesh is evident. There's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Amen. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, but the evidence of the Spirit is going to be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so if we live by the Spirit, if you've been born again, that's what it means. If you live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking in one another and envying one another. Folks, let's be honest. Those of us who have been in church life for any length of time know that most of what our memories of, our ch of church are, the bickering, the dissensions, the strife, the envy, correct? It's in the same list with orgies. It's in the same list with drunkenness and idolatry. We would hopefully never approve that if that was going on in our churches. How come if you were committing adultery, the leadership might go to you and say, look, you need to stop this or you're not allowed to be here anymore. How come when all that backbiting and gossip and all that dissension and strife is going on and people are using Facebook to attack each other or when people are using the phones to get enough people to get the votes for what they want? How come nobody's going and sitting down in their living room and say, my brother, my sister, this has to stop or you can't be here anymore? Because it's in the same list. We might, yeah, exactly. Some of us might have to move the plank from our eye. We're going to get to that in a second, Susan. We'll get to that in just a second. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You're going to see this has been a problem, not just in the church now. This has been a problem in the church all along. The church is quick to just ignore sin and not deal with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 12. Paul says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. He's writing to the church there in Corinth. He said, for a man has his father's wife. We don't know the specifics of it, but there's a guy there that's sleeping with his father's wife. And, are you, and, and you're arrogant. In other words, he might be in leadership. Ought you not rather to what? Mourn. Shouldn't this grieve you guys? And you're okay with it? Yeah, I know this guy uses the F word at work all the time and everything, but he's a good deacon. Oh, you'd be surprised. Maybe you wouldn't. He said, let this, the man who's done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the, Holy, Lord, of the Lord Jesus, 
You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says your boasting is not good, folks. You, you're okay with this stuff? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Again, the Bible's real clear that we need to be serious about sin and not act like it's okay. We understand, hopefully, that we need to mourn over our sin in order to be saved. We need to grieve over the fact that I'm lost and I need a Savior. But what's happened is, is we have stopped seeing sin for how God sees it. And the Bible says Jesus died because of that stuff. And after a while, we start thinking, well, that's okay. That's just how things work. Or that's just, you know, people will be people. And without realizing it, the church has become corrupt and weak and crippled because the church has not been willing to lovingly deal with sin. Oh, but you know what? Know what part of the reason why we don't want to deal with it? We may lose members. Numbers. Because we've been taught, y'all grew up with the plaques on the front of the wall, how many in Sunday school, how many in, in worship, what the offering was. Some of you may be mad if they don't have it on the bulletin on Sunday, how much the offering was last week. Some of you are mad if you don't know what the attendance was. Because we've been taught to measure results. And when you do that and you get focused on results, you're going to try to get people to pray prayers when the Holy Spirit hadn't gotten them to that point yet. You're going to be making decisions because you're more worried about losing members and whether or not you can pay the light bill. And you're going to allow things that God does not approve to continue. True kingdom people are never, ever comfortable with their sin. I could go on and deal with some more, but the Bible's pretty clear, and I think you understand what I'm saying. Now, like Susan pointed out, when we grieve over our own sins, it makes us spiritually able to help others caught in sin and not just simply judge them. I'm going to deal with that in more detail later tonight if we get there. So if you just hang on to that. I just want you to hear me say it because I'm coming back to it. Because you won't be able to help and deal with sin. We've already talked about the fact that the church needs to be willing to deal with sin. Well, you can't deal with sin until you actually know how to grieve over it in your own life. And we're going to talk about that in a lot more detail when we get a little bit later on. Oh, by the way, in each of these Beatitudes, there's always good news, right? Blessed are the, those who mourn. What's the good news? They shall be what? They shall be comforted. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. God doesn't want to just have us sit around and beat ourselves up. Whenever we see in Scripture someone truly grieve and repent and, and mourn over their sin, remember Isaiah 6 where we read Isaiah and how he said, Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I've seen the Lord. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. In other words, he said, you're going to be all right. Your response was appropriate, and I've removed it from you. That's why David, when he grieved over his sin with Bathsheba, and he wrote, as you know, Psalm 51, was able, when it was over, to get up and take a bath and to wash and say, you know what, I begged God that the child would live, but he's chosen the child would die. Let's move on. God's forgiven me. Grieving over your sin doesn't mean you keep beating yourself up over and over for the same sin. By the way, let me say something to you that some of you are going to understand and some of you probably won't, but I'm going to say it to you anyway. Let the Lord take it from there. Those of you that won't forgive yourself for things you've done wrong, that's the highest level of pride. 
I'm going to say it again. For those of you that won't forgive yourself for things that you've done, that's the highest level of pride. Because what you're really saying is, I should never have done that. I just can't believe I did that. I should have never done that. No, um, we all do it. And we need his forgiveness. And when you act like, I should have never done that, you're a very proud person to think that you never should have. You don't understand your, your sin apart from Christ. Yeah, you're also saying Jesus wasn't enough, or he may forgive me, but I can't, so I'm higher than him. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. Look at verses 1 and 2, and then 9 through 11. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. By the way, does anybody know when this is going to happen? Is, is Israel's warfare done yet? No. When is this going to happen? At the end of the, sorry, at the, end of the uh, tribulation, the beginning of the millennial kingdom. By the way, what is Israel going to do, the Israel that's left at the end of the tribulation? What is going to be their attitude? They're going to, they're going to be broken. The Bible says they're going to weep. They're going to mourn over him they've, they've crucified and pierced. And they're going to beg for his forgiveness. And the Bible says, okay, now you've had the right response. Comfort. Comfort. Go to verses 9 through 11. Go up on the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, his, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. When Jesus comes back and he judges the world that does not respond appropriately with grieving over their sin and repentance and mourning, he's going to judge them and destroy them. But for those who respond appropriately, nation of Israel specifically here in this passage, he's going to comfort them and he's going to carry them like a guy would carry a lamb. There's good news for those who mourn. You'll be comforted. We say, go ahead. Just out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Is there um, something like in Leviticus, in the giving of the law, where when there's a, a sin and a revelation and a comfort and, and uh, a returning, that the doubling occurs? I think of Job, you know, the thief was found out, mm -hmm. presented the thief, and he was caught alive, and so that that's why there was a doubling of all Job's. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking here. I, can t I, I can't tell you specifically that that's a perfect parallel, but there is a parallel. And you see it in the fact that it, the Bible's very, very clear that if we're faithful to respond the way God wants us to, He's going to multiply our blessings. So doubling might not be enough, is what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying? That's why I'm afraid of saying it's a, always a doubling. Because then we'll say, oh, that means if I have five, it's going to always be 10. Or if I have 10, it's always going to be 20. I think the scripture teaches that God actually blesses even more than that. Do you understand? So I think the double is more of a picture of a multiplying of his blessings when you respond appropriately. Those of you that have kids that have uh, kind of gone away, but when they repent and return and have the right response, what is your natural response? What do you want to do? You just want to just hit, what do you want? What do you need, you know? Your heavenly father is way more than that. He's way more generous than that. Back to Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek. Go to Psalm 37. I, I know I referenced Matthew chapter 5, but we're already off it again. 
Matthew chapter 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Go to Psalm 37. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 11. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they'll soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. By the way, when Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land, people thought that he was giving a new teaching. He's still quoting from the Old Testament here. But I want you to see close, look closely. Did you notice the psalmist's definition of meekness? It's patiently waiting on God. I want you to understand, meekness is not weakness. Actually, one of the best illustrations of meekness that I've ever seen was a picture of a bull being led by a child on a rope. Could that bull do what it wanted? Could that child stop it? But he submitted himself to his role. And even though he was powerful and capable of doing something, that's not what he was supposed to do. And he was meek. Meekness is not weakness. Actually, the stronger you are, the more powerful you are, the more things you have at your disposal and your ability to handle situations, the more meek you can be. The weaker you are, the less power you have, you're not as meek. But the stronger you are, and the more you submit to God, you can actually be more meek. Sounds crazy, but I'm going to ask you this question tonight. Are you totally trusting in God, or do you struggle with waiting patiently for God to deal with your situation or your adversary? Did you notice in this whole passage, it kept saying over and over, don't fret over the guy that's winning right now who's doing wickedly. Don't fret over the fact that the world is seeming to prosper in their desires that are against God. Wait patiently. Be meek. Because the meek, as you're going to see in a little bit, will inherit the earth. The ones who don't think, well, we have to defend ourselves. We, we need to, we, I, need to, I need to protect my rights. That's not meekness. Meekness is, Lord, if you want to do something about this, you can. And if you've chosen not to, you have a reason, and I'm going to wait on you. It does lead to evil, because then we end up starting doing their stuff. We start playing their games. I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures that may surprise you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6.
I'm going to read to you verses 7 and 8. It's been, Paul's been dealing with, the, again, we just saw in chapter 5 that the church has a man sleeping with his father's wife and they think it's okay. And now in chapter 6, he's dealing with the fact that this church in Corinth is suing each, there's people in the church suing each other. Look at, look at verses 7 and 8. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I'm not saying that you should never be involved in a lawsuit, but the Bible's very clear that you should never be involved in a lawsuit against your brother. We should actually be spiritually mature enough to reconcile these situations amongst ourselves. But what if he doesn't want to? What if he gets a lawyer? Paul says, why don't you lose then? That's a tough one, isn't it? I told you we were going to be going deep tonight. Why not be defrauded? Why not suffer wrong? Well, I have my rights. And if, and if I don't do something, he's going to, oh, be careful. Blessed are the meek. You want a perfect example of what I'm talking about? Um, go to John chapter 19. Look at verses 10 and 11. Pilate says to Jesus, you're not going to speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Don't you realize how much power I have? Don't you going to say something? Jesus says, uh, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is the greater sin. In other words, Jesus was calm in that situation. By the way, was he wrongly accused? Were they trumped up charges? Were they making stuff up? Was he accused of things that weren't true? And he trusted himself, the Bible says, to the one who judges justly. And he said, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless it were given to you from above. Folks, let me just tell you, when I ended up in the hospital again, and by the way, I had a CAT scan yesterday to check on my cancer. I'll find out tomorrow whether or not my cancer has come back or stayed away. And you know what? I totally forgot that that's all happening tomorrow. I really did. I just remembered just now. Even though I've had blood clot three years ago in my leg and then cancer for a year and then Blood clots in the lungs this past weekend, and now I just, like I said, CAT scan again yesterday for the, for the cancer and meeting my cancer doctor tomorrow. It's not even crossing my mind to worry about it. You know why? I understand that I'm a child of God through Jesus Christ, and nothing can happen to me without his permission. Someone said to me earlier, boy, why do you keep getting Satan so mad? I said, look, Satan couldn't do anything unless my dad let him. So he may be mad all he wants, but he's still only allowed to touch me when my father allows it, so I can rest in that. But when we try to take things into our own hands and try to defend ourselves and try to... Well, the Bible says that that's not meekness. It's the meek who are one day going to be ruling and reigning in the kingdom to come. You know, in Matthew chapter 26, you don't have to turn there, verses 47 through 54, you know, Peter starts to swing his sword to defend Jesus. And Jesus says, don't you realize I could just ask my father and he could send so many thousands and thousands of angels... Could Jesus have done something about that arrest? But he was meek. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. I had a person ask me recently, well, what if someone comes into your house and they go to attack your family? 
Aren't you going to defend yourself? I said, listen closely. First of all, we have to be real careful that we don't just make a blanket answer for every situation. The Bible says that we're to be led of the Spirit. In some situations, Paul took the beating, and other times he said, hey, are you allowed to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? And sometimes he was beaten and left for dead. Other times he was put in a basket and hid it and snuck out of the city. There's no formula. Don't think there's a formula for what I'm talking about here. But what I told this person was is this. I hope that I live each day in such a way that I'm led of the Spirit in how I respond to each situation. But if you had to make me choose one or the other, I would always fall on the side of turning the other cheek. Because that shows that I'm trusting in God no matter what happens. Now, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't defend myself. You understand what I'm saying? But I want you to understand, we've got to stop living by, I just live by, I think it's, no. What's the Spirit of God telling you to do in this situation? But the Bible talks that a lot of the stuff that we read about here in the Scripture, we're not seeing in the church today. But look at Jesus again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and following. Be subject to the Lord's sake, sorry, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. By the way, it's amazing to me how many individuals in the church, Christians and churches, break the laws of their area by cheating on whether or not they follow code. You'd be amazed how many churches I deal with who they know the code says that they actually have to have their, chicken, their kitchen inspected or have to have a certain type of a hood or a certain kind of fire suppression system. But that would be very expensive. So they come up with ways to not let the government know that they're not up to code. Oh, I could go on. Folks, I don't think we realize how much Sin has crept into our church, and we think it's okay. Do you owe taxes? Well, I don't think they're fair. Pay them. Pay them. The Bible says that we're to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor is supreme, or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. But that's twice he said, honor the emperor. Live as people who are not free. I'm sorry, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is the gracious thing, that when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. And when He was reviled, He didn't revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed. You see it? Let's be honest for a second, folks. Is this the attitude we see in Christians today? Or do we see people feeling a need to defend themselves? Oh, I got good news, by the way. As always, there's good news in each of these Beatitudes. The good news is the meek will be given authority and dominion on the earth in the new world. Go back to Psalm 37. Let me just point out to you a couple things real quick. Psalm 37, look at verse, uh, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell where? In the land and befriend faithfulness. Look at verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Look at verse 11. And the meek shall, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Go to verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those who cursed by him shall be cut off. Look at verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Look at verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt, exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. You know, the Bible's real clear. God says, vengeance is mine. Revelation chapter, I'm sorry, uh, Romans chapter 12. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Folks, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a strength that rests in God's authority and God's control and his power. And you don't exercise your authority. You submit yourself to one who's in control and you trust him. Wives, God's asked you to live meekly with your husbands. Oh, husbands, God's asked you to live meekly with your wives. What are you saying? How am I meekly? If I'm to be the head, how am I to be meek? Oh, no, who's your head? Guys, Christ, you submit yourself to him and you do everything he tells you to do towards your wife. Hey, we got no problem as guys saying, well, you know, wives, you submit to your husbands. But we, are we willing to submit to Jesus when he says, I want you to serve her? I want you to meet her needs? I want you to be seeking to love her in a way in which I've loved you? <laughs> And this Sermon on the Mount wasn't as much fun as we thought it was going to be. Oh, but like I say, good news. Go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, look at verses 6 through 10. And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall what? Reign where? On the earth. It's coming, folks. 
Have you ever, anybody here ever thought, man, I wish I was in charge? Anybody ever thought that? Am I the only one? Of course. Guess what? The Bible says one day you will be if you're meek here. If you'll submit yourself to God and his plan for your life, and even if that means you seem to lose in the eyes of the world, it's okay. He's going to take care of you. He knows. And as Sheila's already pointed out, he will repay multiplied. He's paying attention. He's paying attention. By the way, what did Job do to have what happened to him happen? It was the father's plan for his purposes to allow Satan to do what he did, correct? Well, and by the way, he lost a lot, didn't he? But the Bible shows in that story that God multiplied him in that life and in the life to come as well. Folks, relax. It's time that the world starts to see Jesus. And Jesus is not what has been pictured in the church today. We keep talking about being more than conquerors and overcomers and... Mm -mm. If God wants to exalt me, I'll let him exalt me. Until then, I don't need to toot my own horn. I don't need to mark it. I don't need to make things happen. I believe that the God that called me to what he's called me to will open the doors where he wants them open and he'll shut them where he wants them shut. And until then, I'm good. And if he wants us me to spend some time in the hospital in the process, okay. I wish I could tell you the cool stories of some of the things God did while I was in there with Christian doctors and nurses who my wife will tell you started coming to my room from other floors of the hospital because of what God was doing. Don't have the time to tell you the stories, but it's kind of cool. One of them even knows you. We're going to do this fast. We've got 10 minutes left, 12 if you're good. Matthew chapter 5, the next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Listen closely. It's one thing to know that you're a sinner, that you're spiritually poor. It's another thing to be grieved by the fact that you're spiritually poor. But it's even more important to seek the only way for us to become righteous. Do you see it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize they're sinners. Don't stop there. Blessed are those who realize they're sinners. And blessed are those who grieve and mourn over the fact that they're sinners. They don't just say, well, I'm a sinner. That's just the way it is. No, no, they're grieved by it. But you know what? There are people that say, I'm a sinner and I'm in trouble. But what can you do? Oh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's one thing to acknowledge you're a sinner. It's another thing to be grieved over that fact. It's something else to also say, brothers, what must we do to be saved? Help. What am I going to do? You also notice how righteousness is not already in us, but must come from somewhere else. If you're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you don't got it. It's got to come from somewhere else. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, look at verses um, 1 through 3. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, this is the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear, witness, bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to what? established their own. They're thinking their righteousness comes from within them. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. That's why Paul was grieved for his people of Israel. They would even say that they need sinner, that, 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 that they need a, that, sorry, that they need righteousness, but they thought that they could produce it themselves. No, it's outside of you. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Paul himself, one of those guys who thought that his righteousness came from his own effort. 
In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, Paul says, Though I have reason to have for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, don't read over too fast. A lot of us don't really fully understand what Paul just pointed out. He said, look, if you, if you want to put yourself up as saying you have righteousness in and of yourself, why don't you measure yourself against me? He said, I have every reason to have confidence in the flesh. He said, look, as you see here, he goes, um, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, so maybe some of you were circumcised on the eighth day. Let's keep going. Um, I'm of the people of Israel. Okay, you might be Jews as well, but keep going. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. You might be a different tribe, but that's fine. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Here's where he's starting to win. Here's where he's starting to get a step up on him. Oh, because the Jews would tell you, there's no way they could live as righteous as the Pharisees. I mean, these guys tied on their mint and their cumin, and they kept track of all this stuff. They had ceremonial washings. Nobody could be like a Pharisee. And then he says, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. I had so much zeal for the, for the way of the Jews. And then he says this, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul never said he was sinless, but he said, I challenge you to find an area that I broke the law. Oh, he did in many ways, as you're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount, because the law is deeper than just the outward appearance and the outward keeping of it. It's a heart issue. Paul broke it in the heart issue. But as it came to outward keeping of the law, Paul said, show me anywhere I, I didn't keep it. Now look at what he says next, though. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found him in Him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul said, I, I had earned my own righteousness. I had worked it up from within me, and I was better than most everybody else. And I came to realize that was a waste of time, and it was rubbish, and I throw it all away. And I want to know a righteousness, not one that comes from me, but it comes from Christ through faith in Christ. And that's all I want is a righteousness that comes from him. Oh, and by the way, as you're going to see, Paul didn't think it happened just once. He also sought that on a daily basis. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. By the way, hopefully you understand, and I'm skipping over that section of my notes. Hopefully you understand that there's only one way that we can be righteous, correct? There's only one way, and that's through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Jesus in John chapter 6 said, He is the bread of life. Come to me if you're hungry. In John chapter 7, He is the living water. He said, Come to me if you're thirsty. Oh, Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Who do you go to for your righteousness? The bread of life and the water of life, which is Jesus himself. But we understand that hopefully. But I want to talk to Christians in the time we have left. In Ephesians chapter 5, look at what the scripture says. It says, Therefore be imitators, verse 1, of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as, as is proper among saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works. By the way, keep that in mind, verse 10. Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. I'm going to say it to you again. I want you to try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because of the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Does that parallel with verse 10? Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord, verse 10. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here it is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks always for, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here he says, you want to know what the will of God is? Try to discern what's pleasing to God. And here's the will of God. Don't get drunk, which leads to debauchery, but drink. You need to be drinking of the Spirit. That's what he says, be, being filled. In the Greek, it actually means be being filled with the Spirit. It actually means that in being filled with the Spirit is not something that happens one time. It's actually something that is going to hopefully happen to you continually throughout the day, throughout your life. You have been given the Spirit of God. You've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit of God's in control of you. You have to choose on a daily basis whether or not you're going to obey the Spirit or obey the flesh. That's why Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 says that daily we need to deny ourselves, lay our flesh on the altar, if you will, our bodies on the altar, which is our spiritual act of worship and our reasonable service, not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, which is me first and living for self, but by renewing of our mind, we're to then know what the will of God is. Daily, we're to drink of the Spirit. How do we drink of the Spirit? The same way in which we get saved. We come to Jesus in faith. And even though we've been born again, even though I've been saved, my flesh gets up every day again. I still wrestle with it just like Paul does. Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. And then he says, who will save me from this body of death? By the way, Paul still grieved over his sin. He still mourned over his sin. But he also knew that he went to Jesus on a daily basis and allowed him to walk through him. Remember how we saw in Galatians chapter 5, where if we've been born again of the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, we need to learn how to walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, not envying and jockeying for position. Folks, listen to me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we think that just needs to be saved. My prayer is that the church begins to hunger and more, hunger more and more for the righteousness of Christ that's already within us to be manifest to the world. But you have to want it. You have to want it. I can't make you hungry. I can't make you thirsty. You have to acknowledge you already are. That's the Spirit of God's work to get you to that point. My job is to show you 
that not only did you need to drink of him in order to be saved, you need to drink of him on a daily basis. Be being filled with the Spirit, that is the will of God. You know what God wants for us? To just walk with him, trust in him, lean on him, listen to him on a daily basis, let him lead every thought, every word, every action. He wants us to live at peace and just let him live his life through us where we just kind of calmly go through the storm, even though you get blood clots in the lungs, even though life continues to be who knows what's going to happen tomorrow when I meet with my cancer doctor. And I'm going to say something to you in closing tonight that I think you guys know me well enough to understand. I thank God that he healed me of the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma a year ago. But there are times that I wish he didn't. You know why? Because the reaction of the church to my being healed, I'm going to say it nicely, is shallow. When I tell people God healed me, they go, praise God. But if I were to come back next time we meet and say my cancer's back, most likely the reaction of the church would be, oh, that's so horrible. Is God good? Okay, then um, is he only good if I'm healed? Or is he good if he chooses to have the cancer come back? Do you understand what I'm saying? If God chooses, and I don't know what he's got in mind, and my wife and kids can tell you this is the honest truth. Either way, he's good with me. And sometimes I lean toward, I hope it comes back. I don't want to go through chemo again. We're going to pray about that. But at the same time, I would rather be used of God to see the church grow in their maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ and not just see him as this great Santa Claus. You understand? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The church today has stopped being hungry and stopped being thirsty for righteousness. And we're satisfied with the fact that we're saved. We've actually got to the point where we actually don't grieve over sin anymore because we're going to heaven. We're forgiven of our sins. And what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, being evidence of kingdom people, has not been evidenced in the life of his church. There's more that I want to talk to you about that, but we'll close with this. There's good news. There's good news. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what's going to happen to them? They shall be filled or satisfied. You hunger and thirst, you're going to eat. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will receive righteousness. We're going to close with this last passage. Go to Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. And Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence or his boldness or his shamelessness, as I'm going to explain in just a second, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. And what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give, if a fish, give him a snake? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give a Winnebago to those? No, that's not what it says, is it? We hear ask and seek and knock and we think, oh, cool. That means I get the promotion. That means I get. No, no, no. Remember Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. When you start hungering and thirsting for righteousness, when you start hungering and thirsting for what God wants, when you're truly meek, it's no longer about what you want. It's about what God wants. And when it's about what God wants, your desires will be his desires and his desires will be your desires. And when that happens, he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, not just for salvation. Oh, yes, he'll give you the Holy Spirit if you haven't been saved and you need to be born again. He'll give you the Holy Spirit, but he'll also daily Fill you with his Holy Spirit if you just ask him. God, I want you to live your life through me. I'm tired of trying to live a little good life. I'm trying to betray being a good Christian. Lord, when you said you'd do it, would you? I ask you and I believe you will. And if you drink tonight and you drink tomorrow and you keep be being filled, how do you stay drunk with alcohol? You got to keep drinking. How do you stay filled with the Spirit? You got to keep drinking. So some of you hungered and thirst for righteousness when you were saved, but you stopped hungering and thirsting for righteousness. All of these principles, all of these truths apply not only to the lost person, but also to the believer. I love you. We'll see you next time.